The Boarding Schools Expo takes the time and stress out of finding the right school to meet your family's needs. By bringing schools to major centres where they're all under the one roof, the Boarding School Expo gives your family the chance to discuss your educational needs directly with representatives of the school. In 2022, they're launching Boarding Expo 365, a virtual expo reaching families across Australia. Whether you're up in the Kimberley, flying choppers east of Normanton, or making Bree on King Island, Boarding Expo 365 will showcase schools right from your kitchen table. It's truly destination boarding from wherever you call home. Head to their website, boardingexpo.com.au, to discover your boarding school options today. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Hello listeners, as you can hear, my voice is not 100% at the moment, so rather than record an episode and make you listen to an hour or an hour and a half of this amazing dulcet tone, what I'm doing this week is bringing back one of our most ever popular episodes from the archives. This episode was originally number 100, it is the story of Jane and Hayden Sale, and I just have goosebumps thinking about this. It is one of our most popular episodes by far. Um, It was featured as number 100. We're now up to 160 something. So if you are new to the show and you haven't gone back and listened that far, you're in for a treat. Um, And if you have, well, let's be honest, there are some episodes you just want to listen to over and over again. So I hope you enjoy it and I'll be back with a episode where I have a better voice, um, hopefully next week. The cycle of life and death amongst flora and fauna is par for the course for life in the outback. But what happens when we are faced with our own mortality, and that of the ones we love? Today's story is just that, and so much more. It's a story of trauma, courage, resilience and vulnerability. It's the story of Jane and Hayden Sale, whose lives were changed irrevocably one July morning in 2011. To start this episode, I asked Jane to tell me about the day of her accident. Amazingly, that morning I had this horrible feeling of, I suppose I'll say doom, it's a bit dramatic, but I felt like something awful was going to happen. One of our staff had come in the night before with a big splinter in underneath his fingernail, and um, I couldn't get it out. 
And then my dad, who had had an open heart surgery early 2011, it really was the year that kept on giving, he was up there and he was having chest pains. So I asked the staff member with the splinter in his finger if he could drive dad into the Fitzroy Crossing Hospital so dad can get checked out and the doctors could see to his splinter. Yeah, so I had this horrible feeling of something bad happening, but I suppose I was sort of putting it on worry about my dad. So they took off in the morning and we drafted. Um, we didn't have a huge crew down there because we'd lost um, John t- t- to drive into town and we went down to the yards. We drafted the cattle the day before and there was um, a f- couple of clean skins in there in the mob and we we basically had to process the larger bulls because they were going to go to market and they could go to, as meat workers within Australia because the live export ban was still on. We weren't able to ship. So all of a sudden these local market cattle became pretty important and valuable for us because it was cash flow and income because our income had stopped and we still had to get through the season and muster. So um, where any dangerous clean skins with big horns, you know, we might euthanize them, you know, in years past, um, the value was just too much to us really to be able to be doing that and we put probably too much importance on on processing them and getting them off to market. So this is all happening in the weeks following the live export ban of 2011. What is the significance of a clean skin bull? A clean skin bull is a large animal that's never been in and been seen, been handled by people before. It's never been confined into a yard. And um, obviously they're much more nervous, they're more flighty, but because they have horns and that's a weapon, they know how to use their pretty dangerous even though they're just trying to protect themselves. Yeah, and, you know, you think of it this way, if you're feeling threatened and you're holding a knife in your hand, you might be more willing to lash out at someone than run away, whereas them having those horns is like them having that weapon that they can use to attack. So that's what a clean skin is. So on a normal day-to-day basis you would be working with younger cattle and these ones are ones that perhaps have evaded coming into the yards or being mustered in years past and as you said you in um, previous years perhaps not worry about having to handle them because they are wild and can be dangerous but in the wake of the live export ban you needed every every animal you could get to send to the domestic markets that's absolutely correct yeah yeah so um, the value of these animals were much more than they would have been in previous years to our business. And um, at that stage, our business had no income and it was all about our animal welfare and managing the muster so we could pull the younger cattle off their mothers. Um, but we didn't have the income to pay for that. So all of these um, domestic market animals became much more valuable to us. How was working with those clean skin bulls going in the moments leading up to your accident? This animal in particular we had identified in the laneway and um, we, you know, we did know he was a nasty one. He didn't, he'd come down the race to be drafted, but um, 
we had some trouble getting him back into the race and had to put a pair, fair bit of pressure either side, want me standing one side and um, Gaza, one of our other workers, stand, standing the other to try and um, put pressure on him to go into the race. And all the others, all the other, well, there weren't many bulls to process down there that day because you don't usually get many clean skins when we don't have creek and river country where, where these things can hide. They're um, usually pretty easy to clean out in our spin effects country. So this one in particular stayed at the back and then it was the last one in. So I told the guys to just leave him in the race at the back to calm down and um, we'll start processing the five or six that were ahead of him. And um, the boys were on the crush and I was further back at the first slide gate and the bull started walking down. He seemed, you know, wanting to get to the other bulls and just started wandering down towards the next slide gate. So I walked over to the slide gate from obviously the outside of the race. The animal was in a big steel race. And I went to pull the slide gate and the bull, having me close to him again, put his head down to sort of, you know, as he was feeling threatened and his horn hooked underneath our draft gate that he was walking past and it was chained but he lifted his head up and smashed the um, gate off its hinges and um, came out at me with his um, with the gate on his head and I was only meters in front of him so he smashed me I remember just that last bit of him coming out and, you know, my next memory after that is trying to climb up the race. But Gaza, who was our head stockman there uh, um, at the time, he said I was thrown, you know, 15 metres through the air and landed on the concrete right up near the crush and I was out cold and the bull was trying to, using his horn to try and sort of pick me up. Um, he's sort of scraping right up my bottom body. Thank God, God, he didn't get me on, get my belt hooked on his horn or anything like that. Um, and I don't know how long it was, but I came to and all of a sudden the adrenaline kicks in and I just started, ran across to the nearest gate fence which was a race and with other bulls in it and um was trying to climb it the whole time I couldn't see anything because I opened my eyes and um I just saw red and even from the blood coming from my head injury and even if I tried to blink it it'd still be red I thought I thought I'd lost my eyesight I suppose but I wasn't really thinking that until I got over the gate, but um, the whole time I heard Gaza riding next to me, he put himself right in harm's way to save my life, which he did. And uh, afterwards I, I said that in typical Gaza playing things down. He said, oh, that bull, he just had it in for you. He had an eye for you. His aim was perfect. And so the bull just kept on. Every time I tried to climb the fence, the pool just kept on smashing me, my head against the rails. 
Then I get up and try again and in the end Gaza was just in there and helped push me over and there were two guys on the other side of the race because I was going over the top of a bull in the in the race. The two guys on the other side pulled me over and then Gaza was up and over. He was pretty sprightly and <laughs> quick. And, um, yeah, and there was a – funnily enough, there was a – a cow in there on her own that had been put aside and she wasn't very happy about being on her own and the boys were going, oh, we'll put you over this fence. I said, no, we can handle her. <laughs> Just take me through the gate. I'm not – I can't climb. And this time I was sh- sure I'd lost my eyes. I could only see red and I didn't know what it was, what you could see when you'd lost your eyesight. So the boys – carried me out, helped, stood either side and walked me out and back to the vehicle outside and Gaza pulled out an RFDS kit. He handed me some water and funnily enough, you actually think so clearly. I was thinking very clearly. I think at the time I was thinking I'm going to need, probably need surgery. I can't drink water. You know, all the things I'd learned about remote first aid just really kicked in. And he handed me the water and I tipped it on my forehead and um, I could see. It washed away the blood enough that I could see. And Gaza, he's he's um, he's pretty good, but he hadn't done first aid. I just said, look, just get a pad and can you see where the blood's coming from? And he sort of looked at me wide-eyed, nodded his head and said, right, just put all the pressure you can on that and strap it really hard and um and not long after that oh, I said you need to lie me in the recovery position this whole time I'm staring at this bull the bull was throwing around sort of 400 kilo animals in the yards and still staring me down through the fence it was, it was still I was still really felt really nervous and threatened even just sitting there I lay down in the recovery position I told them to lay me down in the recovery position but I got there and I was in so much pain in my chest um that I had to sit up again and um I think not long after that Gaza had got rung the RFDS and they'd said he'd spoken to them very briefly but they said three hours and um so and not long after that I heard, um, we heard the helicopter and the feeling of relief was just huge, not only to have the, um, helicopter, you know, to have the transport there, but, um, to know Hayden was there was a massive relief. Hayden, you didn't come back to the yards because you knew what was going on. It was a bit of a fluke, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it was, um, I suppose out of a pretty bad day, it was an amazing stroke of luck, really. Um, so we'd not long purchased Walker Station next door. So quite a bit of my time was there. We we're actually still doing the handover, I think. Um, so we were mustering there and counting cattle and doing all the things that you do when you take over a new place. So Jane was running the, the yards in the operation at, at, uh, at Eagle. So, um, I remember. Uh, being there in the morning, I think. I can't, I can't, I can't exactly remember what the details of what happened that morning. You were, you were actually there and then you left. I think I was there, then I went to go. Uh, 
Anyway, the, when the accident happened, I was in transit to the other place in the helicopter, which is next door, and I, um, I think I had to pick up an old truck and drive it down or something like that, uh, of which I remember thinking, I better get my sat phone. So it breaks down, I'll, I can call someone. Um, and I generally tried to carry it with me as, as a as a safety thing. So I turned back probably only 10 or 15 minutes into the trip. And, um, yeah, so I, I, that was fortunate in that the accident had just happened and I was there not long after it happened. Um, Jane was still sitting on the ground with her head bandaged. Uh, you know, the boys were all jumping around as I was landing, sort of waving their arms. And, and I just, I knew straight away there was something wrong, obviously, just by their reaction. Um, so yeah, when I got on the ground, Jane, the accident happened. She already amazingly <laughs> instructed the boys to strap her own head and had pretty much taken control of the situation. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any idea of the extent of her injuries. Um, which I, th- I think I said in my blog that, that was probably a good thing. Uh, I, you know, if I'd known how badly injured she was, it, I probably would have been more panicked, but you know, I was able to remain pretty calm and just say, well, okay, what do we do here? First call was to try and call the RFDS, you know, um, which I did uh, on the sat phone, and then they they said they'd just left on another job and their planes were tied up and they'd be maybe two hours or longer. And I, I knew that Jane was pretty badly injured by this point, you could tell, looking at her, and the boys had sort of given me a rough idea of what had happened. And Gaza, who's a you know really tough, hard, scrabble Irishman, you know, covered in tats and grew up pretty hard in Ireland was, was pretty much in tears, you know, just describing to me what happened. So, so I knew, you know, I knew it was, I knew it was pretty dramatic. Um, so I thought, well, we can't wait two hours because Jane could have internal injuries that we don't know about or there could be something in the interim that's, that's just not going to cut it. And we had no, we didn't even have any panadol, you know, I could have flown, I possibly could have flown back up and got the RFDS box, but I knew I couldn't move it very fast. So I thought, well, nothing for it. We've just got to <clears throat> see if she can sit up straight in the helicopter and fly to town. Uh, so I rang the RFDS back and said, look, this is what I'm going to do. They, they did some, they said, instructed me to do some basic tests on, on Jane to see whether she could actually sit up for that period of time, you know, like for internal injuries and whatnot. And she seemed to think she was strong enough to do that. So we got in the helicopter and, uh, again, luckily I had enough fuel. So just flew straight to Fitzroy Crossing, which was about an hour and a half, hour and 20 minutes, which is, um, which is an extraordinarily long time when you're in that situation with no, no painkillers, you know. So I think that was, yeah, that was pretty traumatic. And the fact that in a little, Robinson R22, which is a two-seat machine. You, you you need two hands to fly a helicopter. You can't sort of let one go for any period of time. Um, so I was really quite worried that she would pass out and slump forward or not being able to sit up straight or, you know, there's no doors on the helicopter. Like there's all these things that you just never think you'd be thinking about. But so I was just really worried and tried to talk to her on the way to make sure that she didn't pass out and I could see it deteriorating you know like this is obviously people talk about adrenaline of accidents and, and that's when you see a bad accident you, you, that is true you know people are fighting off the pain with adrenaline and, and in the moment but when that adrenaline starts to drain away people get uh, I could see her getting weak very quickly you know and she did an amazing job to last that hour and a half and yeah I remember looking down at the beautiful when we crossed the Great Northern Highway, 
And I was thinking we're probably about halfway there and looking down at the beautiful fossilised coral reef that runs from right through from Fitzroy Crossing to Christmas Creek Station, looking down at that, looking at all the landmarks along the way to try and keep my bearings just so I could stay conscious. I was pretty worried at that stage, you know, about brain injuries and head Mm. Mm. fractures and that sort of thing. Um, So When we got there, um, you know, it's hard to describe the relief of getting there for both of us. Jane, more importantly, obviously, for the pain and injury she was in, but me just thinking, well, what am I going to do if she doesn't make it to the hospital, you know, if I have to, I have to land because she can't sit up or something. So getting there was was pretty uh, a massive relief for both of us. And, and normally you fly in and sort of land in a designated spot, and I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to fly straight up next to the ambulance and land there. And uh, Jane got out and... They ran over to me with all the neck yeah. brace and the, <laughs> the special carry stretcher and I was like, no, I just walked straight to the stretcher through the gate and pulled my arm out, put my arm out like, give me something. Give me some morphine. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, oh, they started cutting my shirt off because I think you'd grabbed my I'd, shirt. That's Yeah, morning, I morning, put on but, Hayden's uh, shirt that morning and they started Cutting my shirt off. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Hayden. Well, sorry about your <laughs> didn't shirt. Re- like, didn't oh, realise it was black with dried I blood think it's, anyway. I think it's pretty it was pretty from, done. From blood anyway. But, uh, yeah. So, you know, they, they were great and they, they wheeled Jane straight into the hospital, basically. And, um, and oh. as, a, as a ridiculous sort of quirk of how strange that day was, Jane's dad was already in the hospital getting a blood check. And, it- and John, this poor little ringer, was getting his, and he, Splinter. Splinter taken out of his fingers. So pretty much we took up the whole emergency ward for the day. And James, James dad, you know, he's having his blood checked because he's got a bad heart. So all, just, all, these, infection. all these disastrous thoughts started going through my head that he would see Jane and then have a heart attack and die. Because like he saw the stretcher came how, in how and, he, and then he saw play? Hayden at the head of it and he was just... He's like, what's going on? I said, James, I'll, I'll come and talk to you in two seconds for us, James. Okay. And then at that, at that stage, I actually didn't know... Still didn't know the extent of Jane's injuries, you know. She still had this bandage on her head. Uh, I'd had somewhat of a description from Gaza, but not really understanding how serious the injury was until they took the they took the bandages off, which was quite a shock to me. You know, the whole top of her head had basically been opened up and scalped effectively. Um, so then I had to go out and try and not give Russ a heart attack and explain the dire situation that we were in. And poor little Johnny's there hot on his finger with his splinter in it. It's like, oh, it was, it was just such a strange day. And, and, you know, Russ was, Russ wanted to come in and see Jane. And I just wasn't, I just was, didn't really want that to happen because he thought he would have a really bad reaction to what was happening, you know, in this day that he was in already. And the nurse, I mm. heard the nurse, the nurse was like, and I saw Hayden's face when they took the bandages off and, the nurse went out while Hayden's talking to Dad and said, oh, my God, did you see the head injury in there? And then the nurse came back in and said, your dad your dad wants to come in and see you. And I just went, cover my head, cover my head, all <laughs> worried about Dad. Drape a towel over Jane's head so Russ wouldn't see it when he came in. We wouldn't see mm. the extent of the injury. But, yeah, mm. it was really a very, very bad injury. Amazing that... Managed to remain conscious the whole way in, really. Um, considering that, you know, that's not the only one. It was, it was like a, 
busted sternum and I think they did a um yeah. they did a teeth um, scan some of your teeth were chipped teeth too or smashed and yeah. It was, yeah. It was like a like a very bad car accident really. Were you able to stay with Jane the whole way after that or did you have to go back to the station? No, so I uh they were get readying Jane to go straight to Perth via Broome with a with a jet. You know, that's amazing the service the RFDS does provide in these these times of need. Um, they had to do a CAT scan on my skull they before they could put me in the jet, though, and they had to fly at a certain level yeah. into Broome. But I remember it being quite bumpy on my way in, and it was really bumpy because they had to fly low because of pressure on my head because they hadn't scanned it yet. They didn't know if there were any fra- fractures or bleeding or that sort of thing, so... Um, but they did let Hayden in, but he was strapped. You had to lie down too, didn't you, down the back or something? Yeah, or? they didn't have any seats, so I had to lie on a bed down the back. <laughs> so I didn't really feel like I deserved. But, <laughs> so they, but they, uh, yeah, and, and amazingly, they there was a uh, there was a surgeon visiting in Broome, wasn't there? That, yeah, it was, which was such a relief. Um, well, they scanned me, but the whole time I was just thinking, I'm just getting, I remember being lifted over the rail when I was getting smashed in the yard, thinking I am never going to see my children again. And at that stage, they were two and a half and four and, um, pretty young. And Gaz's wife, Yulia, beautiful Yulia, she was there with them. And I knew that dad would be back, heading back out there as well. Um, you know, I knew they were in good hands and they were, you know, used to me going away for one night or something, but certainly not long. And I was just thinking every flight I get, I'm getting further away from my children. And, yeah, so once I was scanned in Broome Hospital and um, and then they said there's a locum plastic surgeon here that feels confident to do your surgery, it was a huge relief. Although Hayden was giving him 20 questions, he said, I know you're probably very, very qualified, but this is my wife's face you're talking about. So sorry. We actually had a a good friend in Perth who was a plastic surgeon. And he was waiting if I was going to be flying there too. around the world and he was was on standby to – well, I'd rung him and he was, he was like, yeah, just send, as soon as she gets here, I'll take over. So we had a really good option in Perth and I just wanted to make sure that this bloke was up to it, I suppose, because, uh, you know, it was, it's, it's pretty life changing surgery. Jane was going to have a scar for the rest of her life. How that, how that, you know, how that would mend over time. We just didn't know. And it was, you know, 300 and something stitches. So it was, it was pretty dramatic. They kept on asking me, checking my, yeah. What I remembered and what day is it? What time of the day did your accident happen? You know, they said, um, where are you? And then they said, um, who's the prime minister of Australia? <laughs> I said, well, that stupid redheaded woman that did the live export ban. Yeah, she just banned us. <laughs> and they go, oh, you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but anyway, this guy was really good. He just said straight up, "Look, I'm really qualified. If I didn't think I was, I'd be happy for to go to Perth. But you know, it's more time, more travel, and more pain for your wife. So let's get it done." He was great, and he did it. Did an excellent job. He did job. a very. And I also said to him, oh, "I've got one eye that goes slightly lower than the other. Do you think you can lift that <laughs> <laughs> while you're there? Could you just do a little <laughs> nip and tuck? Yeah, straighten that one up a bit. Yeah. 
And then oh, there was dear. a local dentist who repaired your teeth, didn't you? So the scar right across my forehead took away all my worry lines that oh. I've developed over the years that um, gave me a few internal worries yeah. that safety, Jane, I've now been labelled for, for life. Yeah. Were you able to undertake your physical recovery in Broome or did you end up having to go to Perth? A bit of frustration with my injuries. I didn't know at the time. Well, they didn't even speak it because it was so worried about my head and my head injuries. There was no one actually told me I'd broken ribs or I don't remember being told. But what doesn't show up in the scan was my sternum was smashed and the one side of my rib cage was right underneath the other. And also the injuries on the side had given me pancreatitis, which I was rung by someone from the hospital about a week after coming out um, to tell me that I had a phone call saying, do you drink a lot? <laughs> no, not not usually mustering season. It's pretty hard to hydrate, let alone to make yourself more dehydrated. And we've been so flat out. Anyway, he said, oh, well, you know, your lipids are really high. And um, anyway, he said, oh, and then he didn't even have records of my injury accident in front of him. And I said, oh, I had a pretty bad accident because he, he said you can get it from being trauma. Um, yeah, so I had pancreatitis, totally lost my appetite, couldn't lie down to sleep. I was, I, for months I was sitting up. But I didn't know about the chest area, although the bruising was horrendous. The side of my body was black and I had a bruise from the animal's horn that went from my ankle right up my back. Yeah, it was pretty awful, the bruising in my face and my head and my chest. Yeah, I didn't know that what was broken. So I was, I think it was about two weeks later, I went, got on my horse to tail out some heifers that we had in the yards. We were just so short-staffed. Anyway, halfway through, or three-quarters of the way through that, I just said, Hayden, so one of the boys on the bike's going to have to come and get my horse on. You take um, like my chest pain, just sitting on the horse was just not good. So, um, yeah, we eventually had some visitors that came out to the station, friends of um, one of our business partners, that said, have you been to a Cairo? And I'd never been to a Cairo or a physio before. And um, so I went in to see a Cairo in Broome and she was the one that told me about the position of my rib cage and started working and the fact that my shoulder also wasn't rotating at all. It was totally stuck in position. So she started working on getting that sort of my ribs back out and all that stuff. So you'd gone back to work within a matter of weeks of all of this happening, still essentially fairly broken inside without even realising it. Yeah. And yeah. you just kept pushing through it. Yeah. Well, we kind of had to. It was, um, you know, we had minimal staff and we had so much pressure because of the live export ban of trying not to spend too much money in getting our muster done. 
and as quickly as possible because while, while you're mustering, you're paying your staff to be there and our seasonal staff, we just needed to knock off as soon as possible. So the pressure was on to to yeah. get the animals done. We're, we're in a very difficult situation because like everyone else in the industry, you know, you, ha- you have to ha- handle your animals and take the weaners off and for animal welfare reasons, but we had no money to do it. So every every day that you were doing that, with every extra staff member you had was just effectively more debt you were accruing, you know, and, and it gets to a point where you can't do it anymore. So it was very much just Jane and I and a few people trying to do the whole job uh, and we just we couldn't afford to any other way, really. What would the implications have been? You said uh, there were animal welfare implications if you didn't take the weaners off their mothers, so the young cattle off their mothers. Why, why yeah, was there? Yeah, so um, – so in the north, especially, you have a uh, yeah you have a dry season and a wet season. The wet season is green feed and cattle do really well. And then the dry season, it doesn't rain for nine months. Um, uh, you've got to reduce the pressure on the mums by taking the weaners off them, so they're not drinking the milk from the mums, and and uh, their 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 intakes are less, and they can hold condition being the being the, the fat cover on their body to to um, allow them to have the strength to go through to the next dry next wet season. So if you don't take those weaners off their mums, uh, they make they they drag their mother's body con- condition down. And they can get so weak that they start getting stuck in dams, and, and in worst case scenarios, can die. So it's 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 not something you can just ignore. You have to go on and do it. And we were in this awful situation where we we were doing that because we had to do it, but we didn't have any funds to do it. So it was just you know, and that's what the whole North faced really. You know, and on top of that, we're under gigantic pressure because we. Had nowhere to go with these cattle because we couldn't sell the ones we had. You know, and as well, I think a lot of people don't actually get their head around or didn't at the time, especially the politicians. And you're running a breeding exercise; you can't stop the breeding. You know, the calves are already in the bellies, the weaners are already on the mums. Unless you sell the last year's cattle, that last year's weaners, there's not a, no room for this year's weaners to go, and you start running out of feed and water. So, um, yeah, it was a really stressful period. And in the middle of that, you know, they have this near-death experience for, for Jane was was pretty awful too. What was that first time walking back into a set of cattle yards like for you, Jane? Um, yeah, it was it was hard. Um, amazingly, I found my sunglasses in perfect, intact, <laughs> right near the gate. Um, I, I'll, I'll always be very different in a cattle yard. It's not so much the phys- it's not um the seeing it, it's actually the noises. If I hear um something clang behind me or someone yell, um or the sound of hoofs or a or a snort, um like that sounds like an angry s- snort, not uh, from from a cow I'm talking about, not Hayden. <laughs> um I yeah, I it makes me jump. Um, I, I still with noises, it's, and I, I suppose that's because I couldn't actually see anything the whole time. It was just going by what I was hearing, hearing Gaza trying to help me, hearing the boys yelling, hearing the animal snorting and running and the clanging and the smashing and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's, that's the stuff that sets me off. How did you learn? to trust or have trust again in the cattle and the infrastructure that you work in 
I can imagine if this accident had happened because you'd made a mistake, if you hadn't latched a gate, if you had been standing in the wrong place, if you, you know, if there had been something that you could rectify in future situations, I can imagine that would be one way to handle it. But here, you had done absolutely nothing wrong. Everything was standard operating procedure, work, health and safety practices. This was a freak accident that that bull was able to break that gate off the hinges. And so that's not something you can really prepare for in future situations. Yeah. Checking the draft gates is something that I do when I go down there now. Um, checking that the, the pins incorrectly in the hinge because that's what's what broke. Yeah. So that's something that I always look at when I'm in the yards. Um, I think stemming back to what Jane was saying earlier about, um, you know, we're under such financial pressure. Uh, we, these were the only animals that we could sell were domestic animals. Um, so, you know, yeah, since since that accident, we any any animal that is a real danger or a threat to people, we we put down in the yards now, and that's not many. You know, we might we might handle a hundred thousand cattle a year in our business, and we might shoot three for the year. You know, but if they're danger to humans and stressing it, the animals, and the as other well. thing is they'll be danger to other animals. So they'll get on the truck and they'll horn another animal on the truck, or they'll or they'll potentially harm someone coming off at the yard at this end, or you know, those sort of animals. Um, that are aggressive and dangerous. We, we, we don't handle now. Uh, but in those days, you know, and, and it was in, in obviously with the 2020 of hindsight, it was a mistake, but we were under a lot of pressure. You know, this was a $500 that we didn't have and $500 that we didn't know where, how we were going to raise to pay the staff for the week. You know, so that's, there was pressure on us that, that maybe we would have done things differently if we didn't have that. Live exchange is the major event for the livestock export industry and it's being held this year in Darwin on the 10th and 11th of November. Open to all members of the supply chain, the conference program features thought-provoking and informative speakers, trade exhibits and social events. It's a great opportunity to find out more about live exports and registrations are now open. Visit liveexchange.com.au to get your tickets. There obviously would have been a big focus on your physical recovery, the physical injuries that you could see, and, of course, being in this uh, pressure cooker situation of the live export ban, even though you were trying to focus on that and your family and your business and you had your mind elsewhere, you can't really ignore the physical injuries to an extent, but the psychological ones would have been much easier to put, to, you know, compartmentalise away and put in a basket when did they start to come back up to the surface? Yeah, I suppose the emotional trauma from an event like that, it definitely, you don't even know you're compartmentalising it. It just goes to the side. You've got, you know, I was a mum with young kids. We had a business that was putting us under enormous amount of pressure and um, and people to look after on the ground. I was in the yards. I was cook, you know, um, and doing all all of those jobs. So you just don't have time to even think about it. And the first time I um I thought yeah, I rem- I Hayden was away later in that year, October 2011 it was. It starts to get hot and, and you know not so many staff around so there's not so much cooking and there's 
I'll catch up on a lot of office stuff that time of year. I was asked to drive Gazza down to the yards to go and pick up one of the, the loader or something like that. Um, and I dropped him off at the yard and I was sort of halfway back to the house, which is a 16K drive from the yards to the house. And um, all of a sudden I felt this, it was like a sting in my leg and these tingles sort of up and down my leg and this ache and tingling going on and I was convinced I was bitten by a spider and, well, that's all I could think of, something had bitten me a centipede or a spider or a millipede, you know, something. And, you know, we've got redbacks up there and I was like, oh, God, I've been bitten by a redback. And, and I, d- I didn't know where to go. Yulia, Gaz's wife, was up at the house of the kids. Um, you know, Gaza was down at the yards and I suppose he was my, so he'd saved my life, you know. I wasn't sure which direction to go in, even though the house would have been where the RFDS kid is. But I could tell he, he was looking at me when I got down there and he's like, and I said, look, I don't know what's wrong, but I just can't, I can't be on my own. And I felt like I had this bite. I said, I think I've been bitten by something, went up to the house. There was nothing there. And that stage I just had a splitting headache. And we rang a friend of Hayden's who's a um, psychologist and she said, oh, well, sometimes when some, some, some reason she thought it was maybe a hallucination, you can get headaches after a hallucinating episode. I wasn't really thinking it was a panic attack and I certainly didn't put it down to a panic attack. But now looking back, I know that it was and, and knowing more about them now, you know, it's your body. The way I react is when I'm physically injured, you know, so it's my body telling me I'm physically injured and I need to look after, do something for myself. Um, but that was not a spider bite. It was, you know, it's like my brain makes these things up. Um, I sort of had a few sort of minor panic attacks, but then one night just fast asleep, I think it was 2013, the next one. But there were many years in between of, you know, I was just, I think Christmas that year we decided to stay in the West and not go down and see family. We had my mum come over and fly in, but I just didn't want to go anywhere. I started, and then once I got into town, we were staying at a friend's house and I didn't want to go back out to the station. Couldn't explain why. You know, I love my home out there, but I just wasn't ready to go back and have the pressure of looking after people. And, um, yeah, so that sort of attitude started. Um, and I suppose I was getting a bit right towards the end. I was getting really snappy, um, reacting what I call is, you know, I was thinking at the time that was really selfish of me to get cross at someone or do something and I felt it, you know, I was acting out of character. Um, I'm usually fairly level-headed and I don't lose my temper all that often. Mm. But I was kind of starting to do that in situations or get cross at the kids, which where I usually had a lot of patience. Um, so in amongst that and my worst panic attack was probably when I just woke up during the night with chest pain and um, 
I thought I was having a heart attack and um, tried to wake Hayden. He's just like, oh, you're fine. <laughs> like, great, thanks. So I went, I said, I'm going to ring the RFDS. So I went into the office and um, the guy, the doctor on the other end was actually Larry, who was my doctor that flew, that was looking after me when I flew in after my accident. And he got on the line and he just went, he's got an American accent. It's like, Jane Sale, I do not want to talk to you. <laughs> um, he goes, no, no, only joking. And I was like, oh, Larry, I think I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> and um, I said, but I am non, you know, I have suffered from a panic attack. Um you know, I bet I don't know which one it is. And he goes, okay, let's deal with the heart first. Tell me what you, is, is anyone with you? And I said, I can't get my husband out of bed. <laughs> he was flying at four, getting up at 4 a.m. Anyway, Hayden came in and, um, he's, he's, um, you know, checked my pulse and all that sort of stuff. And then he said, okay, put me on the phone to Hayden. Apparently the instruction was give her three Valium, Valium and if she's still awake in, in half an hour, give her another couple. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was how I was treated and, um, you know, I would – from there I had a panic attack flying with – my sister was living in Dubai, had a panic attack flying from um, Perth to Dubai with the kids and they were getting air sick and vomiting and I was – you know, it's it's just the most horrible, debilitating feeling, helplessness, you know, and it always comes in a position where I know I'm isolated from real help, like in the air or, you know, out on the station in between the yards and the it's it's with the responsibility of the kids, you know, it's always happened like that. When were you first able to identify these episodes as panic attacks and attribute that label to them? Um, I suppose it was just from Googling, <laughs> Googling stuff. I did chat to a friend of mine who's a GP. I was talking to her about it and she was saying, you know, I think it's panic attacks and da da. And she was trying to encourage me to see someone, um, which I was kind of, oh, I think I did see. I saw someone before and she sort of ran through and she said, you know, this sounds like post-traumatic stress disorder and you need to, you know, and I, don't, I suppose I didn't understand what I was going through at that time. I didn't talk very extensively and, you know, right up until 2014 we were feeling the effects of the live export ban even though the borders were only shut for a month. The ongoing effects of the what we did to Indonesia by cutting off their food supply like that caused a huge issue with um, with them wanting to deal with Australia and um, our market really didn't make it back to where it was until about 2014. Um, the hardest year of all was 2013. You know, it wasn't as far as cash flow is concerned. That's when it really hit. Um, they were looking to get their beef elsewhere and our prices dropped significantly. Mm, the quota was what really damaged us. Mm. Um, you know, in the, in the wake of that stoppage, the Indonesians brought in a, um, 
acquired a maximum number of cattle that they could buy, government mandated, of 220,000, I think, from uh, the previous year, we'd sold them north of 800,000. So it effectively one-quartered our, um, our, how many cattle we could send there, which then mean there was an oversupply at our end and, uh, and our price crashed to below viable levels. So it was the next probably two to nearly three years were, were very, very difficult. Because of where we were geographically, you know, it was un- unviable for us to truck cattle and really just too far to truck cattle. You don't want to be doing that to your animals. Um, to the other side of the country to sell. So, and then, and the flow on effect to other beef producers was huge too, because there were, you know, people that were closer to those markets that traditionally went to the north for live export, uh, sent cattle into the domestic trade, which then crashed the domestic market. So there was, there was some really, really big, uh, flow on effects that, uh, that lasted many years. Yeah. So I suppose, you know, it was, I suppose you felt I felt validated hearing that I've got post-traumatic stress disorder. That made me feel a certain amount of relief. Um, and I, um, but yeah, we were just still too busy growing our business. We'd we'd taken over another station a month before the live export ban, so you know we were now spreading ourselves over two properties and developing um, both still. And then in 2013, we bought another property. We liked loading ourselves. So yeah, we, we kept moving forward and two young children keeping us busy. And yeah, we, I suppose I didn't really look into things more as far as my emotional well-being. Um, I'd do a few things, but I, you know, really didn't know the extent of how. I was going until 2015 where I was just suffering a panic attack at least every week, one a week. And it was always at the time of year where it slowed down. It was always between October and March when you're catching up on book work, you, you know, you're doing a bit of maintenance around the station. We go away um, for try to for six weeks over that period and get away from it all. And um, that's when I'd be feeling awful and hadn't be like, well, come on, you're, you're away now. We're on holidays. Why can't you enjoy it? Why don't you relax? And that was when I was at my worst, um, which was really difficult to get my head around. But, yeah. What was the trigger to make you go and get help different to what you'd previously sought out? Hayden was away a lot in 2000. And- 15, the start of the year, he had meetings with our partners. We were talking about, um, selling our business and, um, he was, you know, doing a lot of trips back and forth for meetings and, um, industry meetings and things like that. So, um, I was on my own a fair bit. When I say on my own, we had people at the station always, but, um, that, Along with the kids, it was just, I, I couldn't handle the responsibility anymore. I wasn't coping with it. I didn't want to be responsible for everyone. I didn't want to be on my own out there without Hayden supporting me. And it was on the eve of him having to, he came up that he had to head into town, into Broome again. And I just, 
I just lost it. I was bawling. I was in an awful state. I was just saying, I don't want you to go. And he said, well, come to town. And I said, I don't want to go. I don't want to do the trip with the kids. I don't want to up everyone. And they were on school of the air. And, um, and he just insisted that we go. Yeah. It sort of, it had come to a head. You know, it's, time was getting worse, not better. Um, it's a funny thing when you're um, in that situation. It's like you you lose your confidence to some extent, don't you? you yeah, know, absolutely. You know, I you did. You second guess can't, yourself. You can't make a decision, and it's it's you just tend to spiral from there. You know, so it was it was a real make or break situation. So we thought, well, we better deal with this, and probably de- you know probably should have dealt with it sooner. But at that point, it was things that things like this need to come to a head to actually take some action, and that was which is one of those moments where we said, "Right, this is." Well, Aiden said, "Right, I." You, you it's know. like you don't have a say in it, and that's you know this is what, this is the things that happen. The, the, the people that are close to you or your friends are the ones that push you to do these things, and we've all, I think we've all been in these situations to some extent, um, and it's your friends that help you. And it was just got to that point where we said, "Okay, we need some help." So to town we went. Yeah, it was a horrible, horrible feeling. I felt like I was, I don't know, I just felt like a huge failure um, going in. I didn't want people to know. I didn't want staff to know um, why I was going in, but they all knew that I was just up and leaving and had things planned for that week that were, were going to have to be rearranged. And so Hayden was rearranging everything with Gazza and Yulia and, um, the staff that were there and we just, yeah, I was just basically told, pack the kids and we took the govy and that we had at the time to help with the kids and continue their schooling from in town. And we ended up in there for a week. Um, and the person I was seeing in there just said, you know, if you, if you had a physical sickness, if you had something, you know, if you had cancer, you'd be coming in for treatment every month, you know, for some sort of chemo or you'd be going down to Perth for chemo. You've got to make the time to get yourself better. You've got to give yourself a week every month and come in, see me and do things that um, work work on, you know, you and looking after yourself. So we started doing that and a friend who's a G- my GP friend who's, been wonderful all the way through. She um, she just said she started talking to me about EMDR therapy and some people locally in Broome that were doing a, quite a bit of it and very good at good at it and the difference it's making for people being eye movement and desensitization and reprogramming, which sounds fairly complex, but it's just working with your eye movement and um, relaying reliving memories, but it opens you up to the actual emotions of the event, I suppose. This is the way I'd describe it. Not you sitting there going, this happened, that happened, that happened. It's more about how my feelings flowed through the event and over time it makes you open up a lot more. But it's before that, my first visit back in, you know, I was prescribed um, medication to start me on this recovery. And, um, that was horrible. You know, there was a stigma 
attached to taking they're on medication because they've got mental problems, you know. It, it hasn't always been, I think, you know, how accepted how it is today and I suppose regionally we're a lot slower to react to these things as well. So I was kind of feeling like, oh, people are going to think I'm I'm a nutter, um, you know, and I've, I'm failing and um, I, I can't manage without help and um, – yeah, it was really hard to take those tablets. Um, but, you know, the difference it made was huge and such a help for me at the time. I couldn't have made my way towards that other therapy and started thinking through the situation if I didn't hadn't have taken them. What would you say to people listening who are perhaps faced with a similar decision regarding their mental health and, as you just mentioned, the stigma around taking medication for that. You know, I think we've had a lot of response to the story when you shared this story on our website a few years ago to see someone in such a position of leadership and prominence within the community to acknowledge and admit, you know, taking medication for a period of time. What, what's your advice to other people that may, you know, there is still a, a fair stigma attached, well, not a fair, but a fairly big stigma attached to it um taking that step is such a difficult you know if you if you're in a position like I was if you feel the way I do it doesn't have to be known you don't have to talk to anyone about it but talk to your GP make an appointment and see a doctor they're not you know doctors are so much more than just fixing wounds um, or diseases, you know, these, these mental issues and the pressures of the world can be huge. And, um, it's certainly talk to your GP. The, you know, this is all part of what they do. And, um, and they'll hopefully prescribe the best thing for you and, um, and making sure you do it medically and get the right advice is really important, but do it. And you don't have to tell anyone. You don't have to. They're like, man, talking about it now, it took me a long time to, to talk about it. And it's obviously it took me four years to even go and see someone about it. Um, but speak to someone and get the right advice. But you don't, you don't have to – it's a huge step. It is a big step, but push yourself. Just pick up the phone or now you can book online. You don't even have to talk to anyone, book that appointment and um, do it. Mm. It's been 10 years since your accident uh, you said it took, you know, up to four years before you first really sought help to really try and tackle this problem. Would you say it's a problem that has been solved or is it something that will be ongoing and managed? Um, I manage it all the time. Um, you know, my anxiety level, we, my family, the Peterson family, we've got – a worry gene, we all say, we've got aunts and my grandmother used to worry a lot. My dad thinks of the worst case scenario and always, and my sisters like it as well. And my sister always said to me, why, why have you not got the worry gene? And, um, after my accident, I said, I've well and truly had it worry gene beaten into me <laughs> now. Um, yeah, I will, I will always be more anxious. I will always be more aware of my mortality. Um, but in that, 
is a huge, there's a gift in that as well to realize how lucky you are and to be grateful for what you have. Um, my family, my wonderful husband, my beautiful kids, you know, um, sorry. And, um, throughout it all, you know, proud of what we've achieved together. So without them, nothing would be worth any of it. Um, so I'm incredibly grateful and lucky. And, you know, I do manage it. I can feel, I know the signs very well of a panic attack. Um, I know how to talk myself around it and the things I need to do. Um, I weaned myself off the medication. I had, I was taking the medication right through the EMDR therapy and probably a couple of years after, but, um, I got myself to a stage where I felt strong enough to wean myself off and, um, and I have had a process to do that and, um, that's gone really well. I won't have the same stigma if I get in a state and need to go back there again and, and ask for that help. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I once had it described to me as, um, is there is a ridiculous stigma around, uh, Seeking some help, which is crazy. Uh, if you take a really clear-eyed view of it, just do what you got to do to get better, you know. But that's when you, when you're in those those depths, that's not as easy as all that. Uh, it's pretty brave to be able to do it. But I once I, I think it was interesting. I had it described to me once as just a, a it's a chemical imbalance in your brain. So it's a, it's a medical issue. There's nothing to do with whether you can't cope or you or you you're somehow weaker or anything like that. It's just literally. A chemical imbalance in your brain, and sometimes a short period on some medication helps to rebalance those chemicals. So, it's, if it's you think about it practically, it's it's just seeking help, like it's like taking a drug for asthma or something else. You know, it's, it's just it's just that to get past that that mental block and seek the help. It's just enormous in people's lives if you can do it. It's also um, frontal lobe tissue damage to the brain. Um, talk to a lot of specialists I, I now go to a cranial cranial osteopath when I'm um, further away from where we live <laughs> um, and those services are available um, but frontal lobe just because I didn't have um, I didn't have any fractures in my skull I'm a very hard-headed woman <laughs> um, you, the tissue damage to the frontal lobe has you readjusting it's actually having to readjust how you think and how you feel and how you process things. So you need to have a fair understanding, I think, when you've had a head injury of how much just your normal day-to-day processing changes um, and that's all all a part of that and it takes a lot of understanding and a lot of working on yourself to, to try and do that. And keep living your life at the same time. So, um, it is a, you know, it's a fair, um, road to come back. It's not, you know, people, I tend to compare myself and people who had worse and people, you know, had accidents and they've, you know, and I know that. Um, but, you know, it is a hard road with a head injury to learn how to re process things even though there's people go you know there's no mental damage from your accident there's you know um there there is 
but it's very hidden and not talked about very much about that the issue of the tissue damage and how much it can change your processes. A big part of the reason you're both sharing this story is to raise awareness and try and break down that stigma around uh, the psychological impacts and mental health issues that can happen, whether it's come from, you know, um, an accident or any other circumstance. I think with these sort of events, as we've noted, it can be quite easy to focus on the physical injuries and not really recognize the and pay uh, due attention to the psychological ones. I think it can also be quite easy and for obvious reasons to focus on the main person or people who were injured themselves, which is why I would like to ask you, Hayden, out of all of this, what have you done to look after yourself? Because while you weren't attacked by a bull, you have also been under, you know, you experienced your own level of trauma, especially seeing Jane the way you did and having to fly her and then watch her, you know, change over the next couple of years as she struggled that that does have an impact on you, and I think it would be quite easy for people to not consider that that something perhaps needs to be managed and addressed. Yeah, there's there's definitely um, trauma for people around it as well. You know that, that probably gets forgotten, especially um, our staff as well that were there on yeah, the ground. Like Gaza, we sent them know, to counselling or offered them counselling. Yeah, he he saw the accident. He was really traumatised by that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's that and. Um, you know, just this morning, I was quite shocked at how hard I found it to read back that the blog I'd written on the accident because you know you tend to just, I suppose, a way of coping is you just put that aside, you know, compartmentalise it or something. I don't know, but you just, you know, you've got to get on with things. It's what he does, but it's it's there. It's always there. It's always in the back of your mind, and how close we came to, you know, our whole existence changing really to mm-hmm. young kids and. And, and it affected the kids. You did, yeah. And they, um, and that didn't really show up for, you know, four or five years. But they, you know, mm. started to worry when I'd be away for a while. Or um, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, but they don't realise it at the time, and we've got to try and keep an eye out for them and their well-being. Yeah, and I think and just worry, um, not dismissing it. Like all of these things, you know, I don't think you can probably. Just try and forget about it. You know, now that's the worst thing to do. It's probably what I, I do. Your body to. won't let you. <laughs> just won't your brain let, won't, you won't let, let it go. Like as much as you try, it won't let it go. So if you if you're struggling with it, the you know the, the advice is seek some help, and that's and there's nothing wrong with that. There's, mm. there's certainly nothing wrong with that, and it's actually a smart thing to do. And, and another sign as well is I suppose I, I drank more as well. I drank more alcohol. I come home and have a few drinks and it would make me feel better. Um, and I suppose is to be aware of your friends that are doing that would also be the advice. Be wary of your friends that are, you know, change character from really anxious to relaxed as soon as they have a drink. There's, there's something there that's got to, you know, the, the personality changes because it's relaxing them and that's because they're feeling pretty awful when they're not drinking. So And that you know, the upside to seeking help is enormous, isn't it? Like mm. the you know, the relief I think that, that is felt once you've 
once you've faced up to it. And the validation of saying, oh, yeah. this is this, this is normal, this is this, for like, this situation, that's normal. Yeah. And realise that it happens to so many other people. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's, you know, when you speak to your doctor, you sort of, I suppose you're half expecting him to be a bit judgy or something. I don't know. It's just, it's just that what society does. But when you get there, they're, um, my psychologist they, they must cried. Just a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pretty bad when the psychologist cries. <laughs> when I was telling her about what I'm, what I do and how, what's happening in my accident and everything. And Hayden said, I had my head done with tears anyway. Hayden said, did you know she was crying? Cause he was in there with me at the time. Yeah. And there's so many people wanting to help. You know, the mm-hmm. services are there. Uh, the people are wanting to help. You just have to take the step. And, and I think when you do take that step, the relief is just enormous. You know, mm-hmm. you, your life starts to return because yeah. you, you're suppressing it and doing things that you wouldn't normally do and coping and, you know, stiff up a lip and all that carry on. But, you know, when you actually do take the step to sort it out, it's just a massive relief, isn't it? You yeah. Know? And just that's part of the healing process. The hardest thing, I think, also is to not worry about what people think. Yeah. I think that's my hardest lesson in life, full stop, especially coming into an industry that, I hadn't grown up in, you know, to try and put aside, which I still struggle with, worrying about what other people are thinking. You really have to try and that's the that's the one emotion that does need to be stomped on, you know, um, as long as you're, you know, taking advice from the right people. You shouldn't worry about what other people that don't mm. have a full understanding of your situation think. It's, you know, a good way to think about it is it's, it's being strong. It's not being weak, you know, to, to face up to it and, and do something about it in itself takes quite a bit of strength, doesn't it? So the idea that, that somehow you're weak is ridiculous. You know, I don't know how we've got to this point as a society because the strongest thing you do is, is face that and deal with it, not, not bury it, you know. It has gone just 10 years or two months ago, I suppose. Fourth of July. Less, yeah, not yeah. even two months ago. It's just gone 10 years since your accident and it's been one heck of a ride and a roller coaster since then. Looking back, what would you say is the biggest lesson that each of you guys have learned throughout this experience? Biggest lesson is just to family first. Hayden, my kids, family has to come before everything else. So if you and looking after yourself is the only way you can look after your family, and then from there, business, you know, you, your other interests and your business and that sort of thing. But you can't look after your staff. And I've had some in, majority of our staff over the years have been incredible people and so supportive. And um, you know, you can't look after anyone if you don't look after yourself properly. You can't look after your children. You can't look after Hayden. He takes a fair bit of looking after too. To, um, <laughs> this was his time to shine. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, you can't do any of it if you're not looking after your physical and your mental well-being. Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely would agree with that. It's, um, you know, it's, it's your family. Sometimes you tend to get lost in everything else. Everything else seems important, um, but that's the most important thing in your life. And if if something's affecting that strength of your family, you need to 
put everything else aside and deal with it and make sure that you do everything you can because, you know, these, strangely enough, tends to get ignored. You know, you're so busy in your life and other things and other things you're wanting to do and dealing with problems and other people's problems quite a lot of the time, especially in station life. <laughs> so we all live and work together. There's always some drama going on somewhere. You tend to sort of not look after yourself and that's, that's, uh, that's really important. And that's not being selfish. That's just, that's Absolutely. just, just concentrating on selfish, the, the, really. the right, you know, the important things in life, I suppose.